We see Jesus, this is Hebrews 20.20, and this is increment 186, and it is entitled, Men Who Die. So we're going to take a few moments of silent preparation. So Father, we entrust our spirit to you. We commit our soul to you, we present our body to you in order to serve the living God with a clear conscience. And we ask that you will allow us to receive insight and incentive through the message we're about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. And we thank you for it. As always, the PT appeals to Old Testament scriptures for his argument. In fact, Hebrews may be the best example of a continuous appeal to the Old Testament scriptures of all the documents in the New Testament. We've discovered in our study of Revelation that there are over 700 allusions, I think something like 732 allusions to the Old Testament therein. But Hebrews has both allusions and direct quotations. Hebrews, in fact, builds its entire thesis on biblical texts from the OT. Even here, in Hebrews 7.5, where we're going momentarily, the homilist refers to a commandment in the law about tithing, a commandment that's referred to in Numbers chapter 18, verses 21 to 26, and 1 Chronicles 31.4. The people of Israel from the other tribes <clears throat> were to tithe to the Levites, otherwise known as the sons of Levi, who also came from the loins of Abraham, as we're going to see. It's a Hebraic idiom to say to be in the loins of Abraham or in the loins of a progenitor or an ancestor or a father. Again, it's a Hebraic idiom or a Hebrew idiom that if one was a descendant of someone, then the descendant was said to be in the loins of their ancestor until their birth. Now, I chose to keep this idiom of speech instead of trying to make it more palatable to our current cultural sensibilities, which are oftentimes really hypersensitivities. The argument is intended to accentuate the contrast here between the inferior Levitical priesthood, it's actually called that literally in Hebrews 7.11, Levitical priesthood. Looks like this, L. E-U, which drops into a V in the English language, L-E-U-I-T-I-K-A-T-E-S, and then the word for, that's, so that's Leviticus or Leviticus, and means Levitical, and then priesthood, which is, make that a hard breathing, I-E, R, O, that's Omega, not Omicron, 
Omega, not Omicron. And it's not Omicron, it's Omicron and Omega. If you're talking about variants. So, Levitikes or Levitikes Hiero Sunes. We actually have something I've talked about a lot. Levitical priesthood in Hebrews 7.11. We're going to see it in a moment. So the argument here is intended to accentuate the contrast between the inferior Levitical priesthood <clears throat> and the superior priesthood of Jesus as prefigured in Melchizedek. So the argument proceeds in a straightforward manner here in 7, 5 through 8. I'll read our translation so far. Indeed, the sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the Torah. We just mentioned where that is. Numbers 18, 1 Chronicles 31. They have a command, commandment in the Torah, the law, to collect a tithe from the people. That is, from their brothers even though these also have come out of Abraham's loins. But one who did not descend, in verse 6, one who did not descend from this priestly lineage received tithes from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Now beyond all dispute, says verse 7, in this case the inferior is blessed by the superior. Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek. In verse 8, <clears throat> in the one case, meaning the case of Levi and sons, the Levitical priesthood, men who die receive tithes. But in the other case, meaning Melchizedek as a prefiguration, of Jesus, the Son of God, a superior archpriest, it is testified that he lives. Please notice that. Men who die versus he who lives. The superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek over that of Levi has come to be rooted in a contrast between life and death. You see the genius of the Holy Spirit here and the genius of the homilist or the homily writer. The homilist ingeniously places the choice between priesthoods here, just as Moses put to Israel the choice between death and life, blessing and cursing, with the obvious choice being choose life. Deuteronomy 30:19, in fact, says this, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. In fact, and in reality, the decision which these readers of Hebrews were making was a decision between life and death, blessing and cursing. The priesthood of men who die and the priesthood of the one who lives. To choose the superior archpriest was to choose life. To choose to remain with the priesthood that had become obsolete 
was to choose death. Carnal death. And for some, the death of those who in unbelief would go to Jerusalem and seek the Lord. In John 8, 21 and John 8, 24. Only to be engulfed in the Roman siege and the fiery judgment that had then become inevitable on the Jerusalem of the second temple. Jesus said it to the unbelieving Pharisees, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. You will die on the count of the sin of unbelief. Meaning they will go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast in late 60s AD and they will be engulfed and surrounded by the Roman legions and then die in the conflagration of fire in which the temple is destroyed. It's remarkable to me that scholars who aver and assert that it's not possible to be confident in universal salvation say so because of the references that Jesus supposedly makes to people in hell. I'm going to say that again because it's something that kind of sprung up in this study about men who die versus he who lives. It's remarkable that scholars who affirm that it's not possible to be confident in universal salvation, they say so because of references that Jesus supposedly made to people in hell. So these scholars, I think, have suffered an oversight of insight. They have not yet caught the meaning of the so-called hell references, including that of the rich man in Hades and the goats on the left side of the Son of Man's throne of judgment, Matthew 25 and also Luke 16. They have failed to understand that Jesus was not making reference to a place of endless punishment for those who are the non-elect or for those who elect not to believe in Jesus during the course of their lives on earth. Rather, he was speaking, like Jeremiah in his time, of the demise of apostate Jerusalem and the fiery conflagration that would devour the temple and with it the universe of Second Temple Judaism, which had rejected Jesus, and in doing so, they had rejected the great archpriest after the order of Melchizedek and his infinitely greater offering. Now, as we're about to see, God ultimately vacates. And this is an extremely important and maybe almost unheard of doctrine. We're about to see that God ultimately vacates the decision to reject his son. Nevertheless, the decision to remain with an abrogated law and an obsolete priesthood rendered so by the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ resulted in both historical and temporal personal consequences for people. Historical and personal, temporal consequences for people. Now the subject of hell needs to be brought up again and again because an oversight of insight regarding this subject has left a huge lacuna, L-A-C-U-N-A is a fancy word for gap or kind of a empty space in much of modern theology. I'll say that again. The subject of hell 
needs to be brought up and again and again because an over, of an oversight of insight regarding this subject has left a huge gap in much of modern theology. For example, Karl Barth is rightly famous for turning old-style Calvinism on its head by showing that Jesus Christ is the elect one of God and the rejected one, and that in him the whole of humanity was elected by God for salvation, and this despite, and this despite individuals' rejection of him. God's yes to all of humankind overrides man's no to God. God says no to man's no to God. And he says yes to all mankind in Jesus Christ, in whom all the promises of God are yes. God negates the rejection of God by man. God rejects and negates the rejection of God by man. In his crucifixion, Jesus alone became the reprobate. In fact, became sin. In fact, became the curse for us. And in his resurrection, all of humankind were elected. Here Paul is in hearty agreement. And therefore, there's lower blade data to meet with Karl Barth's theses in his book called, or his multiple volume work called Church Dogmatics. Paul is in hearty agreement because Jesus was delivered up for our offenses, says Paul, and raised up for our justification in Romans 4.25. And by our justification is meant justification and life ultimately resurrection life for all of humanity in Romans 5.18. Following this logic, one would naturally come to the conclusion that all will be saved, even, in fact, that all have been saved in Jesus Christ. But it seems that students of Barth, and even Barth himself, at least at times, balked at the notion of universal salvation. At least one scholar recently averred that it is right and logical not to conclude universal salvation precisely because of the so-called hell references that Jesus made. In other words, we could say there's a universal salvation if Jesus indeed was rejected, the only one rejected, and in his resurrection, elected for all, and all were elected in him, we could easily say, yeah, that means eternal or universal salvation, except for the times Jesus mentioned people being in hell. So we can't say it, you see. We got a balk right there. That's the thing, that's the balk that a lot of people are making today in the realm of theology. And so... And again, even recently, I read one scholar, he averred that it is right and logical not to conclude universal salvation precisely because of the hell references that Jesus evidently made. 
or apparently made. So at this point, I'd refer the listener or the reader to 11 hours of teaching that have been done from this very pulpit on the subject of hell. I refer to lessons 313 to 320 of Rev the Book, which you can find on the website, tetelestai.org, and also lessons 68 through 70 of Romans the Epistle, also on the website. These teachings go a long way to fill in the lacuna caused by an oversight of insight in much of modern theological thought. In other words, if the only reason you can't conclude universal salvation based on Barth's famous theses then you need to understand the insight that Jesus was not speaking of a place of immortal and endless torture and punishment on the unrepentant. The patristic theologians at least made attempts to fill in the gap, in that particular gap, by teaching that everyone would eventually be saved, accent on eventually. Many of them adhered to a doctrine of purification, even as some universalists do today. Many famous universalists adhere to a doctrine of post-death purification. The idea is that those who are unrepentant must pass through an indeterminate period of afterlife purification, sometimes taking ages This purification by fire is not, according to them, punitive at all, but purifying. So not really even painful, but purifying. Now, at least they negated the ideology of an everlasting punishment for the non-elect. And at least they avoided the monstrous and abominable doctrine of double predestination, where people are damned on the basis of the fact that they simply were born and they exist and they're not elect. That's an abomination, that doctrine. It's monstrous. Be careful when you say you're so many point Calvinist because you might be too many points Calvinist. Double predestination is a monstrous and abominable doctrine. And at least the patristic theologians and people who are Russian and Greek Orthodox, etc., have avoided that. But the patristics doctrine of eventual salvation and afterlife purification, which is also held by many universalists today, seems to be just another version of the purgatory doctrine, which suggests that the purification of sins wrought by Jesus on the cross was somehow lacking. And there is required some kind of purification camp for people to endure for lifetimes or ages until whenever God deems them to be fit for heaven, whatever that is. I reject that notion. If there's any notion of eschatological fire at all in the scriptures, it's the fire that declares the quality of works done by human beings during the course of their life and service to God, as 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15 says, where the foundation is still untouchable. In that day, 
day, it says, that day, there isn't the slightest suggestion of a long period of time, say nothing of ages for the purification of unrepentant souls. That's just not there. It's not to be found. Now, I want to consider, and I've done this before, but I wanted to consider two of Barth's theses, T-H-E-S-E-S, -E -E two. The first one is thesis number 33, called The Election of Jesus Christ. This is found in the, now, at least among Barth readers, Bart readers, the famous 2-2, volume, Roman numeral 2.2, the famous thesis of Barth. First, I want to consider 33, the election of Jesus Christ, and he writes this, the election of grace is the eternal beginning of all the ways and works of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God, in his free grace, determines himself for sinful man and sinful man for himself. He therefore takes upon himself the rejection of man with all of its consequences and elects man to participation in his own glory. Now, it would take a lot to unfold all the meanings of that, but I want to say right off the top of my head here that there is much lower blade data from the scriptures to show this thesis to be correct. God in Jesus Christ has certainly determined himself for sinful man. And by that, I would say that means that Jesus Christ's obedience was enacted for sinful and disobedient man so that by this one man's obedience, the many, that is all of humanity, who were constituted as sinners in Adam are constituted as righteous in Christ. We find that in Romans 5.19 if you want the lower blade data. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. 2 Corinthians 5.19. In fact, God made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, had no sin, and did no sin, to be sin, so that we, speaking of the world, would be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, perhaps one of the most remarkable declarations in Scripture. So I would say that Barth is correct to say that God has determined himself for sinful man by Jesus Christ becoming sinful man's sin. Now clearly man here is a term for humanity in its extreme generality, that is, all of humankind. And the reconciliation of the world to God in Jesus Christ seems also to be quite general and all-inclusive. So, should we now say, should we now say that we shouldn't speak of universal salvation, though, because 
Jesus mentioned people being in hell. I just read this last night in an able, a generally able scholar's writings. To say that it is logical that not everyone will be saved because of the many times when Jesus, really only a few times evidently, where Jesus apparently spoke of people being in hell defies logic itself. Let me say that again. To say that it's logical that not everyone will be saved because of the times when Jesus apparently spoke of people being in hell itself defies logic. What is not only logical but also reasonable would be to seek out just what Jesus meant when he spoke of people in hell, quote, air quotes, people in hell, close air quotes. These apparent sayings, it seems, would have to be qualified by the profound declarations of Scripture regarding the justification of all, Romans 5.18, the showing of mercy to all who were shut up in unbelief and disobedience, now, God must vacate the decisions of men in disobedience and unbelief because he shut up everybody in disobedience and unbelief in order to have mercy on them all. Romans eleven thirty two. 32. Speaking of logic. Now, because Jesus himself is the truth, then... His speaking of people in hell can only be a reference to his own rejection, ultimately, and his own experience of God-forsakenness as he determined himself for sinful man. We could even say that there is a man who was eternally rejected. The old man, palaios, anthropos, or in another place, archaos, anthropos. On top of this, it can be clearly shown that references to Gehenna, often translated as hell, by Jesus had to do with the prophecy by the messianic prophet. Jesus is not only priest and king, but prophet. The prophecy of the Messianic prophet of the demise of apostate Jerusalem and the casting of countless bodies of Jewish rebels into the fiery grave of the Valley of Hinnom in the ditch around Jerusalem and not, therefore, to a post-mortem place of everlasting torture and punishment. which would make God far more cruel than Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or countless other genocidal maniacs. To sum up for now, at least, it is not at all logical. It's not at all logical to dismiss the notion of universal salvation based on a few statements in which Jesus appears to be speaking of people in hell. 
Now second, this one to me is more remarkable. Thesis 35, I'm skipping 34, the election of the church. And thesis 35 in 2-2 of church dogmatics, the election of the individual. Listen carefully to this. It's really a paragraph, but it's a thesis in Barth, and I'm going to apply some lower blade data to it, and then we'll shut up shop. The man who is isolated over and against God is as such rejected by God. But to be this man can only be by the godless man's own choice. Let's call the godless man or men, men who die. The man, I'm going to repeat this because this is an extremely intricate thesis. The man who is isolated over and against God is as such rejected by God. But to be this man can only be by the godless man's own choice. The witness of the community of God to every individual man consists in this, that this choice of the godless man is void. I'm going to stop there and I'm going to continue, but the choice of the godless man which he makes himself to reject God is rendered void by God. And I'm going to do some creative exegesis to show this, illustrate this before we close. He goes on to say that he belongs eternally to Jesus Christ. And it reminds me of Romans 4, 5, God justifies the ungodly. The ungodly belongs eternally to Jesus Christ, says Barth, and therefore is not rejected but elected by God in Jesus Christ. Semicolon. That the rejection which he deserves on account of his perverse choice is born, B-O-R-N-E, and canceled by Jesus Christ. And that he is appointed to eternal life with God on the basis of the righteous, divine decision. The promise of his election determines that as a member of the community, he himself shall be a bearer of this witness to the whole world. Think of Saul, a.k.a. Paul, in this regard. That's my insertion. And then finally he says, and the revelation of his rejection can only determine him to believe in Jesus Christ as the one by whom it has been born and canceled. What do I say about this thesis? I say this thesis is both, re both remarkable and right, correct. Because all of the human race receives justification in life through one Jesus Christ's righteous saving act on the cross in which he became sin and was made a curse for every man. That means every man, woman, and child, all of humanity. 
then it can only be true that God vacates the decision of the godless man or woman to reject Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that because that's my thesis. That's an ARC thesis, A-R-K thesis, my initials, because all of the human race receives justification in life through one Jesus Christ's righteous saving act on the cross, in which he became sin, was made a curse for every man or all of humanity, that can, then it can only be true that God vacates, renders null and void, the decision of the godless man or woman to reject Jesus Christ. If God rejects the old man, as he's called, as our old false self is called, then he also rejects the decisions that the old man makes. And the old man can only make decisions of unbelief and untruth and so forth. So his decision to reject God is rendered null and void. Well, where's the lower blade data, you say? Well, as the scripture says, if we deny him, he will deny us. 2 Timothy 2.12. Yeah, what's that mean? It means if we reject him, he rejects our rejection of him. He has to do this. You know why? Because if we become faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. Now consider one of the most remarkable passages of scripture, which the pastor teachers of the church age are urged to teach and proclaim and insist upon and that's 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. It begins with this. If we died with him, and it's the fulfilled condition, we did, then we will also live with him. If we died with him, and we did, we shall also live with him. Now, who's we there? Who's we? Let's blend. Let's make a cake here, let's blend into the mix, 2 Corinthians 5.14, if one died for all, then all died. Now, if we died with him, who? All. Then we, all, will live with him. Now, put this in the right context and logical sequence. If we deny him, he will deny us too. He'll deny us. Now, does that mean if we don't believe in Jesus, he damns us to eternal hell? That's what most, a lot of preachers will make that verse mean that. If we deny him, He'll deny us. If we say, it literally means if we say no to our neomai, if we say no to him, he'll say no to us. I say no to you, Jesus. I reject you. Jesus says, well, I reject your rejection of me. I deny you 
the right to deny me ultimately. Well, you must really love me, Lord. <laughs> yeah, I think so. You see it? If we died with him, and 2 Corinthians 5.14 already says when he died, all died. So if we died with him, and we did, and all of us did, then we, all of us, will live together with him. That's resurrection life. That kind of agrees with, uh, in Christ all will be made alive. You see where I'm going with this? You say, how are you anchored in Hebrews with this? Well, it seems that the writer thinks that Levi was in Abraham's loins and therefore he paid tithes to the greater Melchizedek. And it seems that we might have all been in Adam when Adam sinned and... We may have all been in Christ when Christ was obedient. And it might even be that we could say, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And yet not I, the old man, but Christ, the new man, lives in me. And the life I live as a new man in Christ, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me. He loved me and he gave himself for me and part of his love for me was he rejected my rejection of him. You see, I'm saved by grace. I don't frustrate the grace of God by saying that I am what I am by my decisions. I am what I am by God's decision. That's called I am what I am by the grace of God. Now, let's back up and go over this again. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we reject him, he rejects our rejection of him. In that same sequence, it also says, if we persevere or suffer together with him, we shall also reign with him. So if we deny him, he will deny us. And this bears out Barth's thesis. If we reject him, he rejects our rejection of him. He has to, because if we become faithless, or if we are faithless and unbelieving, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So in 2 Timothy 2.11, the saying is indeed totally reliable, as Paul introduces it. If we died with him and we did, then we will live with him. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, when one died for all, then all died. Therefore, conflating 2 Corinthians 5.14 with 2 Timothy 2.11, we all died with Jesus and we will all live with him. And blending in 1 Corinthians 15.22, in Christ all will be made alive. Consequently, the truth of all humanity, that is, men who die, to borrow a term from Hebrews 7, living with Christ's own life is an incontrovertible truth. It is the truth of all of humanity 
living with Christ's own life is an incontrovertible truth. It's a truth you can't undo. If we died with him and we did, then we will live with him. And all died with him, so the we that lives with him is all of humanity. You can't negate that or negate the idea of universal salvation on the basis of a few misinterpreted, misread, and mistranslated, misunderstood oversights of insight that Jesus seemed to be thinking of and speaking of people in hell. So consequently, the truth of all of humanity, people who die, men who die, living with Christ's own life is an incontrovertible truth. If we died with him, and we did, first class condition, then we will live with him. If we persevere in him, meaning with the perseverance of Jesus, then we will reign with him. Beyond living with him. If we deny him, he will deny us our denial. Consider Peter's three denials of Jesus. I don't know the man, I don't know the man. Damn it, I don't know the man. Think of that. Did Jesus accept those godless and cowardly denials of Peter? Did he say, okay, you just denied me three times. I deny you eternal life. Damn you, Peter. <laughs> no. Did Jesus accept those denials? No. Jesus commissioned Peter to feed his lambs. To feed his sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus didn't accept Peter's denials of him. He rejected Peter's triple denial. And he even gave him three chances to say, I love you, I love you, I love you, Lord. On the beach after his resurrection. Jesus didn't accept Peter's denials of him. He rejected Peter's denial. He denied Peter's denials. But I denied you, Lord, three times. Yes, and three times I denied your denials. You're not allowed to have these denials. You're not allowed to keep them. I don't accept them. Peter, consequently, was converted. What converted Peter was the grace that didn't accept his denial. 
And after you're converted, Peter, after you're, oh, you're going to be tested. You're going to be sifted. In fact, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And I said, go ahead. But I prayed to the Father that your faith would not fail. And after you're converted, Peter, and oh, you will be converted, then strengthen the brethren. Guess what? Peter's been strengthening the brethren, including this brother, for generations after generations after generations. Mainly through his epistles. One of which sounds a little bit like Hebrews. So Peter was consequently converted. What, what leads us to conversion? What leads us to repentance? The kindness of God, the benevolence of God, the overwhelming graciousness of God. So the logic of all this leads necessarily to universal salvation despite, despite misunderstood references to people being in hell. And Jesus referring to people in hell. By God rejecting the choice of the godless man and of all men who die, God rejects the choices of all men who die to reject God. God has rejected the old man, the false self in every person. Don't ever expect him to bless the old man, the false self, to encourage the old self, the old man. God has condemned the Cain in all of us and justified the Abel in us all. Not because of the offering of blood offered by Abel, but because of the offering of the blood of Jesus, which speaks infinitely better things than that of Abel. And with that, I'll say, amen.